This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 3, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I know it's been a while. It's been a while. I was trying to get this out to you before May 2018, inshallah, and I think we're going to make it. I think we're going to make it. I, I don't know for certain because, of course, I don't know when this comes out. But inshallah, we're going to make it. Anyway, uh, we're going to be starting a new series today, inshallah. This is a series on Islam and Africa. Uh, that comprehensive of all of Africa. And instead, we will mostly focus on three African empires, the empires of Ghana and Mali and Songhai. So this first episode is going to introduce the topic and then we're going to discuss the empire of Ghana. We'll discuss a few other things also, including um, the uh, city-state of Gao and slavery in West Africa, things like that. So inshallah, we'll discuss other things, but mostly you're going to learn about the empire of Ghana. Now, I want to let you know, I have I was able to do some really good research on this episode, mostly because of contributions by sponsors to the Islamic History Podcast. I was able to buy uh, some very good books that really... I would not have been able to find this information by just scouring the internet. Alhamdulillah, I thank those of you who are sponsors to this show, and I encourage more of you, please, to become a sponsor. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor and helping the Islamic History Podcast succeed, you can become a sponsor at patreon.com slash Islamic History. Make a small pledge of whatever you can afford, whatever is easy for you, and I thank you for whatever you can do. So with that, let's get into the show. This is Biladu Sudan, Part 1, Gao and Ghana. Biladu Sudan, Part 1 For many people, the idea of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa is a mystery. We know that Islam dominates in several African nations, including Senegal, Somalia, and Mali. And we know there are large Muslim populations in other nations like Nigeria, Ethiopia, and the Republic of Ghana. But few of us are familiar with the fascinating history of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa. Far too many people, including Muslims, think Africa is a dark void, unknown and uncivilized before the European colonists. This could not be further from the truth. There were cities, kingdoms, and even empires in Africa long before Christopher Columbus was born. And many of them were ruled by dark-skinned African Muslims. Ignorance about Islam in sub-Saharan Africa is one problem. More troubling are the stereotypes, biases, and outright falsehoods that linger about Islam and its relationship with the African continent. There are well-meaning Muslims who rightly believe Islam is a unifying force where race and ethnicity have nothing to do with character and righteousness. While this is true on an abstract level, in reality, tribalism and racism have long plagued the Muslim world, including Africa. 
There are also non-Muslims who have a negative perception of Islam in Africa. They see Islam as a foreign Arab religion that trampled the African way of life and enslaved them by the millions. We will discuss slavery and the role that race and religion played. But you should know that African Muslim society was not trampled by Islam. If anything, African Muslim societies have flourished and developed a distinct way of life that is very different from their Arab counterparts. We shall see how Islam came to this area. We shall see how Islam changed the people and politics of this area. And we shall see how Islam in Africa changed the world. This is Biladu Sudan, the land of the blacks. The Sources Before Christianity and Islam, there were no fully developed writing systems in sub-Saharan Africa. If any did exist, they are as yet unknown today. But the lack of a writing system did not prevent Africans from recording, sharing, and keeping track of their history. Oral history, in the form of the griot system, was the preferred method of transmission in much of Africa. The griot was a professional, full-time oral historian, usually bonded in service to a local chieftain or king. The position of griot was hereditary, with the tools and trade being passed down from father to son. A griot was part singer, part actor, part musician, and part storyteller. His job was to entertain as well as to inform. Much of what we know about ancient West African history comes from the griot stories. Though the griot stories are useful, it can be difficult to discern what portion is factually true, what is allegorical, and what is pure fantasy. Fortunately, there are two other sources that provide information about early West African history. Medieval Arabic writings have been the best source for information about the West African empires. The works of famous scholars such as Ibn Battuta and Abdurrahman al-Sa'di provide us with a good understanding of West Africa at that time. The final source for information is archaeological evidence. Where politics and conditions permit, there are various excavations going on throughout much of West Africa. The People and Their Religion We're going to look at three African empires all heavily influenced by Islam. These are the empires of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. All three empires were based in West Africa. Most of the people in these empires were from different Mandi subgroups. The Mandi, found mostly in West Africa, are one of the largest ethnic groups on the continent. Most Mandi subgroups observed a highly organized caste system. This system included royalty, nobles, merchants, smiths, artisans, peasants, and slaves. The Mandi generally socialized and married within their own caste. There was very little opportunity for someone from a lower caste to move to a higher one. The only exception were Islamic scholars. Any male could become an Islamic scholar if they were able to obtain the knowledge. The Soninke are one of the most important Mandi groups and were the largest ethnic group in the empire of Ghana. The Soninke are mostly Muslim and can be found in the modern nations of Mali, Mauritania, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Gambia, Burkina Faso, Guinea, and Guinea-Bissau. 
The Malinke, numbering almost 35 million people today, are one of the largest Mandi groups. They are often known by other names including Mandinka, Manding, and Mandingo. The Malinke made up the largest ethnic group within the Empire of Mali. Today, most Malinke are still found in the modern Republic of Mali. But there are also large populations of Malinke in Gambia, Guinea, Côte d'Ivoire, and Burkina Faso. The Malinke were one of the first African peoples to accept Islam. They would go on to build the University of Sankore in Timbuktu, one of the oldest Islamic universities in the world. Another important Mandi group is the Songhai. The word Songhai was originally the name of the ruling class of the Songhai Empire. But over time, the various subjects within the empire took on the same name. The Songhai have had a long and tumultuous history with the Berbers of North Africa. Through centuries of fighting and intermarriage, the Songhai have absorbed some of the Berber lineage and language. All of this makes the Songhai one of the most unique ethnic groups in Africa. The Soninke, Malinke, and Songhai are mostly Muslim and have been so for centuries. However, the Soso, another Mandi subgroup, used to be animist and were violently anti-Islam. They fought many wars against the empires of Ghana and Mali and committed several atrocities against their Muslim enemies. But today, the Soso are also almost 100% Muslim. In addition to the various Mandi subgroups, there were many other ethnicities found in West Africa. These included significant populations of Arabs, Berbers, as well as other Africans such as the Tukulor, Fulani, Serer, and Wolof. Before the arrival of Islam and Christianity, most Africans practiced one of many traditional African religions, or TAR for short. While many TARs included pagan elements, most of them are some form of animism. Animism is the belief that all things, including animals, plants, and people, contain a spirit. Most TARs incorporated a belief in a supreme being. The Edo of Benin called him Osonabua, or the source and sustainer of the world. The Igbo of Nigeria called him Chukwu, or the great source of life. The Iwi of Togo called him Nanabuluku, or the eternal one. Before accepting Islam, the Soninke of Ghana called him Onyame, meaning the Great One. The Soninke believed Onyame created the world and established order in the universe, but then he left the day-to-day running of things to lesser deities. Though the pre-Islamic Soninke were animists, they also held their dead ancestors in high esteem. Though not quite ancestor worship, the pre-Islamic Soninke believed their ancestors' spirits could punish or reward them in this life. The Middle Niger Basin The Guinea Highlands, located on the southern coast of West Africa, is a lush plateau covered in tropical forests and rising 1,500 feet above sea level. It is the source of several rivers, including the Senegal, Gambia, and Niger rivers. The crescent-shaped Niger River is the longest river in West Africa.
It begins in the Guinea highlands, flows north halfway through Mali, then turns sharply south again before emptying into the Gulf of Guinea. The three Muslim African empires were located in the Middle Niger Basin near the apex of the Niger River. This area is known as the Sahel where the Sahara Desert begins to transition into the African savanna. Though not as deadly as the Sahara, the Sahel is still too dry for large-scale agriculture. However, the Niger River made it perfect for trade. The Niger River connected the tropical regions of the Guinea Highlands with the African empires of the Sahel. From there, trade caravans would cross the Sahara Desert to the kingdoms of North Africa. Muslim merchants would then continue their trade throughout the Mediterranean region and into Europe and Asia. The African cities of the Sahel were the last bit of civilization merchants would see before making the dangerous journey across the Sahara. These same cities would also be the first signs of civilization the merchants saw coming out of the desert. This was how these African Muslim empires thrived. They were an important link in a vast trade network that covered most of the known world. Gao Gao was a small city-state located in what is today modern Mali. Though Gao never became an empire, it was one of the earliest African kingdoms to accept Islam. According to legend, the first king of Gao was a man named Za'alayaman who used to be one of the pharaoh's magicians. The story of Moses' staff turning into a snake and devouring the magician's illusions is well known to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. According to the Qur'an, this miracle convinced the magicians that Moses was telling the truth. So the magicians fell down in prostration. They said, We have believed in the Lord of Aaron and Moses. Pharaoh said, You have believed him before I gave you permission? Indeed, he is your leader who has taught you magic. So I will surely cut off your hands and your feet on opposite sides, and I will crucify you on the trunks of palm trees, and you will surely know which one of us is more severe in punishment and more enduring. They said, Never will we prefer you over what has come to us of clear proofs and he who created us. So decree whatever you are to decree. You can only decree for this worldly life. Indeed, we have believed in our Lord that he may forgive us our sins and what you compelled us to do with magic. And Allah is better and more enduring. 
Legend has it that two of these magicians, Za'alayaman and his brother, fled Egypt and made their way south. They eventually found themselves in West Africa where the local people took them in. When the Africans asked the magicians where they came from, one of them responded, Ja'amin al-Yaman, Arabic for coming from Yemen. The locals thought he was saying his name and took to calling him Za'alayaman. The West Africans made Za'alayaman their king and he ordered them to worship Allah alone. But after he died, the people reverted to their old religion. The original inhabitants of Gao were the Sorko people who traveled up the Niger River, perhaps following fishing patterns. The Sorko, the Gao, and many other ethnic groups would eventually merge to become the Songhai. Kotso Muslim was the 15th king of Gao and the first to accept Islam. He converted to Islam about 400 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. After King Kotso, all of the rulers of Gao were Muslim. In fact, the non-Muslim inhabitants of Gao insisted their ruler had to be Muslim. According to Arab travelers of the time, even though the people of Gao did not immediately accept Islam, they would only accept Muslim rulers after King Kotso. The Arab historian Al-Bakri described how even though the common people worshipped idols, they would present a ring, a sword, and a copy of the Qur'an to a newly crowned king. Not surprisingly, most of the people of Gao became Muslim within 70 years. Gao's location on the Niger River made it an ideal spot for caravans transporting goods between West Africa and Egypt. In addition to taxing these merchants, Gao also exported tons of salt. At a time with no refrigeration, salt was almost as valuable as gold. Gao's rapid conversion to Islam may have been spearheaded by the sudden rise of the Almoravids of Morocco. The people of Gao accepted Islam at around the same time the Almoravids were beginning to expand. The Almoravids may have used their military and prestige to influence Muslim kings in sub-Saharan Africa. The Almoravids The Almoravids were a federation of Moroccan-based Berber clans. The Almoravids forged an empire that stretched from Spain all the way down past the Sahara into the Sahel of West Africa. The word Almoravid comes from the Arabic Almorabitun, meaning those dwelling in garrisons. The founder of the Almoravids was Yahya ibn Ibrahim and his religious advisor Abdullah ibn Yasin. Abdullah ibn Yasin preached an aggressive form of Islam that rejected tribalism and stressed the brotherhood of all Muslims. Abdullah ibn Yasin united various Berber tribes and conquered huge swaths of territory across North Africa. In 1085, a Spanish Muslim prince invited the Almoravids into Spain. He needed help fighting the Spanish Christian armies that were trying to topple him. The Muslim kingdoms of Spain were losing ground to the Christians due to internal fighting and political weakness. The Almoravids were tough people who came from the harsh regions of North Africa. They also adhered to strictly austere Islamic principles. Though they despised the luxurious lifestyle of the Spanish Muslims, they agreed to help. The Almoravids fought back the Christians and stabilized the region. Then they overthrew the soft Spanish Muslim princes and took over their territory. 
The locals welcomed the Almoravids as the Spanish Muslims had levied high taxes to pay for their luxuries. The Almoravids would continue to play an important role in Spain and Africa for nearly a century. Ghana Despite its name, the Empire of Ghana had nothing to do with the modern Republic of Ghana. The modern state does not even exist within the traditional borders of the ancient empire. The Empire of Ghana was actually called Wagadu, which means place of herds. Ghana, which means warrior king, was the title of the kings of Wagadu. Arab writers visiting the area named the entire region after its king. Most of the information we have about the Empire of Ghana comes from Muslim Arabs visiting the area. The earliest texts were written in 773, 140 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad. However, the Empire of Ghana existed long before that. While no one knows exactly how old the empire was, an African Muslim scholar writing in 1650 stated there were 22 Ghanaian kings before Islam and 22 Ghanaian kings after Islam. This would put the establishment of the empire at around 300 CE, three centuries before the birth of Prophet Muhammad. The capital of the empire of Ghana was Kumbisali, located in modern-day Mali. At one point, Kumbisali had a population of 15,000 people. The city was an important stop on the trans-Saharan trade routes and gold, salt, jewelry, and slaves left the city for destinations throughout Africa and beyond. Ghana would not have lasted long without a strong economy and military. Most of its wealth was due to its abundant gold. Ghana's gold mines were located in Bambouk on the Senegal River and produced so much gold they had enough to export to other kingdoms. The Spanish Arab writer Abu Obaid Abdullah al-Bakri described how the king of Ghana owned all of the gold the empire produced. The king manipulated the production of gold in order to keep the demand high. He also levied taxes on gold and salt production in the empire. Ideally situated between Muslim kingdoms to the north and African kingdoms to the south, Ghana also taxed caravans passing through. Ghana was a large empire that included several subjugated kingdoms who paid tribute to the king. The empire was divided into four provinces, each one with a crown-appointed governor. Nonetheless, the individual kingdoms within Ghana were more or less autonomous. So long as they paid their taxes and assisted in times of war, the Ghanaian king pretty much let them be. The king's primary functions were to rule on royal disputes, negotiate with foreign powers, and levy taxes. Unlike most monarchies, the empire of Ghana practiced matriarchal ascension. This meant the right to rule passed through the women and not the men. When a king died, his sister's son would ascend the throne. The idea was that while a king may not know for certain his son was truly his son, he knows for certain his nephew was his sister's son. Al-Bakri described the pageantry that followed the king when he entered his court. The guards played drums as he approached. His royal family marched before him, gold thread braided into their hair. People fell on their knees and sprinkled dust on their heads as he passed by. Interestingly, Muslims were exempt from this. They simply clapped their hands to greet the king. 
The relationship between Ghana and its Muslim citizens was rather peculiar. The king, his royal family, and most of the empire practiced traditional African religions until the year 1076. However, Muslims held a special status within the empire. Islam first came to the empire of Ghana from North Africa when Arab and Berber merchants ventured south to trade with the Africans. Some of these Muslims settled in Ghana, married local women, and started families. These Muslim merchants had a significant advantage. Whereas non-Muslim African merchants followed various customs and rules in their business, the Muslims followed the uniform code of the Islamic Sharia. This made the Muslims easier to deal with and their businesses thrived. As the Muslim merchants grew rich and their families grew larger, they started coming together to form their own communities. Before long, an entire section of the capital was sectioned off just for the Muslims. These Muslim neighborhoods were still subject to the king, but enjoyed a certain level of autonomy. They had their own paid imams, judges, and scholars. The Muslims also gained influence over the royal court. Unlike most Africans of the time, the African Muslims knew how to read and write. These critical skills allowed Muslims to earn high positions within the king's administration. With Muslims dominating both trade and government, it was only a matter of time before the Ghanaian royal family accepted Islam also. By 1076, the king of Ghana was Muslim and within a hundred years of that, most of its people were as well. Ghana's Decline as it happened, several negative events coincided with Ghana's turn towards Islam. These events ultimately contributed to its decline. Ghana was not weak. Despite its wealth and pageantry, it was a very powerful and militaristic empire. Every male, including the royals, received military training. Additionally, the vassal states were expected to contribute soldiers if the empire was threatened. If it wanted to, Ghana could field an army of 200,000 soldiers including cavalry, archers, lancers, and elite troops. But during peacetimes, Ghana only had a few career soldiers. Their job was to patrol the borders and keep the vassal states in line. Two of Ghana's most important vassal states were the kingdoms of Takror and Aldagost. Takror was located in between modern-day Senegal and Mauritania. Takrur had clashed with Ghana for generations, but was usually beaten into submission and forced to pay tribute. In the 1030s, nearly 50 years before Ghana's first Muslim king, a Fulani chief named Warjabi ibn Rabiz converted to Islam in Takrur. He established an Islamic government in Takrur and launched a rebellion against Ghana. By the time Wadjabi ibn Rabis died in 1040, Takrod had not only broken free from Ghana, it had also added to its territory. Unfortunately for Ghana, many of its richest gold mines were located in Takrod. Fifteen years later, Ghana received another blow when it lost Aldagost. Aldagost was located in modern-day Mauritania and was critical to Ghana's economy. While Ghana controlled the gold trade, Aldagost controlled much of the salt trade. In 1054, the Almoravids invaded Aldagost, killing and capturing many of its inhabitants. 
Weakened by the Takrod Rebellion, Ghana was not able to take it back. With the loss of much of its gold and salt mines, the Muslim kings of Ghana began launching wars against weaker African states. These kings used conversion to Islam as a pretext, but it is likely there were also economic reasons. These religious wars did not prevent Ghana's decline. The empire continued to weaken and its neighbors smelled blood. The non-Muslim Soso people from the south began to snatch pieces of the empire away. The Almoravids continued to invade from the north, and a severe drought forced thousands of people to leave in search of more fertile lands. Though the empire crumbled, Ghana continued to survive, albeit in a much smaller role. However, an unfortunate consequence of Ghana's religious wars was an increase in slaves. It wasn't long before slavery became a vital part of Ghana's economy. Slavery in Muslim West Africa Critics of Islam like to point to the Qur'an's implicit sanctioning of slavery. Many of these same critics often allege that Muslims enslaved Africans long before the European transatlantic slave trade. Slavery in Islam is a difficult and complicated topic and well beyond the scope of this episode. But it would be a disservice if we did not at least discuss the connection between slavery and Muslim West Africa. There are a couple of things we should note before beginning. First, the climate and geography of North Africa does not allow for large-scale agriculture on huge plantations. As such, chattel slavery, as experienced in the Americas, never truly existed in the Muslim world. Instead, most of the African slaves were used for domestic work or as laborers. Hence, the experience of slaves in North Africa, while still demeaning and inhuman, was nowhere near as barbaric and cruel as in the United States and the Caribbean. Second, in both societies, there were children born from the union of free men and their women slaves. In the Americas, these children were still considered slaves as they inherited bondage from their mothers. But the idea of enslaving one's own child is incomprehensible in Islam. In the Muslim world, children born from these unions were automatically free. Slavery has been a part of human society since the beginning of human society. And slavery was well entrenched in Arabia long before Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was born. As the armies of the Islamic Caliphate conquered kingdoms and tribes across North Africa, they acquired captives and slaves along the way. In those early days, slavery was often justified by religion and culture. Conquered peoples from highly developed societies like Damascus and Alexandria were often spared slavery. Furthermore, Muslims were generally more reluctant to enslave Jews and Christians. However, Pagans and those from more primitive societies were more readily enslaved. As such, the Muslim world included slaves from various backgrounds including Persian, Berber, and European. Slavery was also well established in Africa long before Islam came. Both Gao and Ghana had domestic slaves before any interaction with Muslims. 
However, slavery was a minor part of these African societies. This began to change as Islam grew more dominant there. Slavery soon became a vital piece of the African Muslim economy. While Arabs are often criticized for enslaving Africans, black African Muslims also deserve much of the blame. As mentioned earlier, Barjabi ibn Rabis and Takrur and some of the Muslim rulers of Ghana used Islam as an excuse to conquer their non-Muslim African neighbors. As the African Muslim kingdoms grew, so did the number of African slaves. Another reason for the growth of slavery in Muslim West Africa was Ghana's weakening hold on the gold trade. As the empire of Ghana declined, the gold trade shifted to other regions and powers. To make up for this economic loss, Ghanaian merchants began exporting captured African slaves to the Muslim kingdoms of the north. Some African Muslim rulers even provided slave girls as concubines for visiting Arab dignitaries. But this slave economy would not exist without a demand for slaves. Most Berbers were Muslim and could not be easily enslaved by other Muslims. And while European slaves were available, acquiring them was rather difficult. This all led to an increased demand for African slaves. As the slave trade to North Africa increased, the association between race and slavery strengthened. It wasn't long before Arab and Berber Muslims began to accept the same mythology used by Christians. The Hamitic curse is based on the biblical story of Prophet Noah and his son Ham. The story states Noah got drunk and passed out naked. Ham saw his father's nakedness and spoke about it to others. When Noah awoke, he was so angry, he cursed Ham's children with slavery. Biblical scholars determined the descendants of Ham were the people of Nubia, in other words, Africans. European and American Christians will later use this story as a justification for African slavery. This story does not appear anywhere in the Quran nor in the authentic statements of Prophet Muhammad. Nonetheless, several Muslim scholars adopted the Hamitic curse and used it to dehumanize black Africans. Some even went so far to suggest that being black was part of the curse. Muslim scholarly texts from the medieval era included imaginative and lurid descriptions of African people. Many of them described Africans as ugly and monstrous beasts, uncivilized and barely human. Not all Muslim scholars accepted the Hamitic curse, however. The Tunisian scholar Ibn Khaldun rejected this idea and criticized those Muslims who perpetuated it. Nonetheless, in time, the association between blackness and slavery became entrenched in much of the Muslim world. Even today, many Arabs still refer to blacks as Abid, the word for slaves. Sumanguru and the Soso The empire of Ghana fell as a result of military pressure from the north in the form of the Almoravids and from the south in the form of the Soso. By 1230 CE, Sumanguru Kante was the king of the Soso. His village was once a vassal of the Empire of Ghana. But by this time, Ghana had fallen on hard times and could not face Sumanguru's armies. Sumanguru was hated almost universally by the Muslims of the area. He was described as a large, hulking man, evil and full of hate towards everything Islamic. 
Arabic text from the era called him Sumanguru the Cruel, an evil demon, a plunderer, and a sorcerer. He was rumored to tinker with dark magic, kill people whenever he was in a foul mood, rape young women, and torture old men. His conquest wreaked havoc in the West African trade centers and nearly destroyed the economy. He started by subjugating various local kingdoms in order to gain control of the gold and salt trade. When he had built up enough strength, he turned his sights on Ghana. He invaded the capital of Kumbisali, occupying it and forcing the royal family to flee. Sumanguru then led the Soso against the Muslim Mandinka people. He ordered the Mandinka to pay him tribute, which they refused. Sumanguru attacked the Mandinka, ultimately overpowering them. Hundreds of Mandinka were killed or sold into slavery. The Muslim kingdoms of North Africa were horrified by Sumanguru's actions. They did not want to do business with this pagan tyrant who ruthlessly killed so many Muslims. The caravan stopped coming through Sumanguru's territory and the economy crashed. Sumanguru reacted by raising taxes on the conquered Africans, which made them resist him even more. When they refused to pay, Sumanguru sent his armies to exact retribution. It was during these dark times when an unlikely Muslim hero rose to challenge Sumanguru. This man would be Sundiata Kita. In the next episode, we will discuss the epic of Sundiata and the rise of the Empire of Mali. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that entertaining, interesting, and educational. We, uh, I was glad to change topics a little bit today because a lot of these uh, the podcasts about Islamic history, a lot of them are, are about warfare. And I understand that, I, I got to admit, sometimes talking about war and, and analyzing military tactics and stuff, sometimes those things are fairly exciting, but... I don't want to give the impression that Islam is all about fighting. You know, there's a lot more to us than just a bunch of fighting. And I'm hoping that even though there was a discussion of some fighting in this episode, it wasn't the uh, the detailed stuff that sometimes we have uh, gone into in the past. But anyway, Alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm glad we got into this discussion. And yeah, I got to admit, I was partially influenced by Black Panther. Okay, we did discuss slavery in this episode, and that was kind of difficult for me to go into and also very eye-opening. There are many African-Americans who dislike Islam or dislike Muslims, particularly Arabs, because they blame them for slavery. For that reason, I guess I, I may have had, may have avoided the topic. I don't know how, how else to put it. I may have avoided the topic of slavery in Islam or maybe try to whitewash it a little bit. And maybe whitewash is the right word to use right now. But the point is I tried to kind of avoid it for a long time. I couldn't avoid it in doing this research. And uh, it was an eye-opener to how pervasive it was in the Muslim world at this time in Africa. Fortunately, Alhamdulillah, I know, as you do now also know, that that stupid Hamidic curse thing has nothing to do with Islam. That's not in the Quran. The thing about this podcast and about myself in in general, even if it is something that I may find difficult to accept, I have to search for the truth and find it out. And I'm actually rather glad I did do this. Anyway, we'll get into that in future episodes, inshallah. This this podcast or this this series is not about slavery, but slavery happens to be wrapped up in it. 
I want to basically acknowledge some of the resources that I was able to acquire or use for this episode. Number one, I want to thank uh, Sheikh Mohammed Sharif. He is the founder of Siyasi, which is a an organization that works on the translation of Islamic texts about Africa in general. And he has a website also called siyasi.org, and it has translations of many of these Arabic manuscripts we discussed that are discussing Africa. He has English translations of them. Siyasi.org, that's S-I-I-A-S-I dot O-R-G. I'll include a link in the show notes if I remember, and inshallah I will. And so you can visit it. If you want to read the English translation of some of these Arabic manuscripts talking about the lands of Africa during this medieval era, I strongly encourage you to go look at it. So it's very interesting. And brother has put a lot of work into this research. It's amazing work, really amazing work. Also, two books that I use, these are the ones I was able to purchase because of the increase in sponsorships. And once again, thank you for those sponsors. The first book is The Royal Kingdoms of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai by Patricia and Frederick McKissack. Very good book. And then this other one is called African Dominion, A New History of Early Empire in Medieval West Africa by Michael A. Gomez. This book is a, it is a brick. It is huge, but... Good Lord, the information it has in it is amazing. I found it very, very useful. Links to both of them will be included in the show notes, inshallah. Also want to thank uh, Tanner Below, who is uh, who, who has volunteered to help me with the research. Even though his he did not help with the research for this episode, he did help, the, help with the research for a future episode, which is coming up soon, inshallah. He has made my life much easier with this podcast and will help get um, episodes out to you much, much quicker. So thank you, Tanner, for your assistance. And I hope we can continue to work together in the future. So I want to wrap it up and close out with a discussion on the role of the griot in West Africa. You'll be hearing that in a few seconds. So with that, until next time, brothers and sisters, Mutaki Ismail signing off from the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. We say in Africa, when a griot die, is like a, if a library born. Because we don't write the history and the paper before. But Griot have the whole history in his head. So when he passed away, he's going with the history. If he, he don't have a, like a son to teach him, so that means when Griot passed away, is like a library boy. To be Griot, you have to be born Griot. Yeah, so this instrument is called Kora. It's the instrument for the Griot people in West Africa and for the, and the Madengo Empire. So it's like Guinea, Mali, Senegal, Casamas, Guinea-Bissau, Africa, Sierra Leone, Labria, Gambia, or Senegal, all that used to be the same community. It's called Mandengo. You want to know the, your history to know what your great, great, great uh, Parang come from, you know, uh, uh, what is his, uh, uh, the family name, what is the meaning for your last name, you know, all that kind of thing. To know that you have to see the griot and you say, my last name is Kamara or my last name is uh, Sisoko or my last name is Jabate or my last name is Kone. You need to talk to the griot, your family name, and after the griot will sing the song for you. 
the son, your great great grandparent, paid the girl to compose for his own family. It's because usually, when you have a possibility to pay the girl, you pay girl, and a girl compose the song for you, and that song, that music will stay forever. The name cannot change because the name will stay in your family name, even if he. You pass where your great great grandson will come, he'll hear your name and he'll know the history and he'll he have he need to know where he comes from, what is the history. That's why we say in Malinke, that is a Mandengo proverb. If it would stay in water for 100 years, wood never transform to be fish. Wood will stay wood. The meaning is you need to know your originality, your history, to know where you come from, and your dignity and your personality.